Hey, Uncommon Leaders, welcome back. This is the Uncommon Leader Podcast, and I'm your host, John Gallagher. Today, I've got a very special guest and friend joining us, Dr. Pippa Schulman. Pippa is the Chief Medical Officer at Medically Home, a revolutionary healthcare organization that aims to decentralize hospital care and bring it into the comfort of patients' homes. She is triple boarded in family medicine, preventive medicine, and hospice and palliative care, which just means she's really smart, and I love hanging out and learning from smart people. In this episode, Pippa shares her insights on the challenges faced by caregivers in the healthcare system, the importance of human interaction in patient care, and the urgent need for innovative changes in how we approach healthcare in this country. While her specialty is medicine, make no mistake, Pippa is also an uncommon leader. In this episode, she also discusses her personal journey and how she became driven to care about people and how we as leaders can do our part to make a difference, not only in healthcare, but also in the lives of others. Everyone's going to enjoy and learn from this episode, so let's get started. Dr. Pippa Schulman, welcome to the Uncommon Leader Podcast. It's great to have you on the show and great to reconnect with you after so long. How are you doing? Thanks, John. It's great to be here. I'm doing very well here at the beginning of fall. Always feels like a time of renewal, actually, even though the, the trees are going to change soon. No, they'll change quick up there in Boston, too, so they change really soon. Hey, I'm looking forward to this conversation today, though, and getting a chance for the listeners to learn a little bit more about you and what you have going on in healthcare and, frankly, what you have going on in your leadership growth as well. But I'll start you off with the same first question that I start off every first-time guest on the podcast, and that's to tell me a story from your youth that still impacts who you are as a person or as a leader today. Well, that's actually an easy one. My wife says I'm annoying because I have known that I wanted to be a doctor since I was a little kid, and I never varied from that path. So when I was in the second grade, I was on the playground at recess, and our school was a kind of, you know, K through eight elementary school, junior high. And the eighth grade boys were roughhousing and pushed me off the slide. I don't think there was malicious intent, but <laughs> the, the ground in my arm met and I ended up in the emergency department that afternoon. And what I remember from that experience is the sheer awe of this magical place, which is not, I don't think, a normal reaction. <laughs> but my mom always said, like, you didn't even cry. Like, what is wrong with you? But I saw this team of people working together and moving quickly and, you know, opening cabinets and and I'm on this table and I'm a little kid and the lights are shining. And I just thought, I how can I spend more time here? <laughs> now, I definitely had my share of injuries, but one should not hope to spend time in an emergency department as a as a patient. But it was really being drawn to this idea of a person comes in at a time of pain or suffering or vulnerability, and you're able to intervene. And sometimes it's as easy as setting an arm in a cast. And sometimes it's just an ear and having a conversation. And, and so that was my calling to be a physician. So it's, it's changed the course of my life. That's second dumb, grade. Dumb boys in, eighth, in the second grade. Yeah. And yeah. never changed. Wow. That is, no, that is quite a story to know right then. And it never changes all the way along. And that is actually pretty crazy. Pip, I always enjoyed working with you when the time we had together at Atrius Health when in Boston and your innovative mind and the passion that you had for the work that you did. I am curious, just for the listeners, as they are leaders, they're looking to grow, they're on a lifelong growth journey. 
from that time since we worked together with seven or eight years ago, how are you different today? What do you have going on? Tell us a story about Pippa in the last seven or eight years. Oh, thanks, John. It, those were the fun times, truly. And I, I look back in the pre-COVID health system era, there was so much we didn't know, right? At that time, I was still practicing primary care. As you know, I was had run a lot of the clinical side of the population health programs at Harvard Vanguard and then Atrius, particularly for patients over 65, and had the opportunity to take over and, and run this innovation center. Uh, the organization had undergone a merger and really was committed to understanding new models of care. And it was an incredible time. I, I always joke that now it would be a transformation center, but back in you know, 2015, 2014, 15, 16, it was innovation. And we really got to play around with how care is delivered closer to patients. And my passion has always been care that's delivered into the home. What I learned though along that journey as we were in our health system trying to make change in a system that I think is very, very forward thinking, that I wanted to partner with folks to help us move initiatives along faster. That's actually how I came to Medically Home. I was looking for a partner in the hospital at home space that could help us with the technology and the logistics because my organization didn't, and by the way, no health system really has great um, expertise in those areas. And so I met the team from Medically Home back in 2016, right around the time we last had contact. And they partnered with us to help design, build, launch this model and start treating patients. And all of a sudden I was in this new environment where whenever we wanted to make a change for patients and rapid cycle changes, right? If it was safe and it was legal, the answer was always yes. And that is such a fundamental shift from how the average health system operates. And it's, it's not their fault. It is a legacy of how they're built and operated and owned and that even the most forward health systems really get stuck and it can be hard to move them quickly. And so moving into this, you know, startup world and understanding we could partner with systems, but we could really try some incredible things and make huge changes much, much faster. That's really the path I came on. I, I jumped over to Medically Home full-time and have been leading, I'm the chief medical officer now, and have been leading the kind of clinical programs, innovation, and all of our growth across the country in this idea of how we not just do hospital at home, but really opening up this world of decentralizing acute care into the home so that we are able to go back to the first principles I learned at Atrius. Patients want help when they have a problem. They want to be known, they want to maintain their autonomy, and they want something that has low life impact. You probably remember that, seeing it on the wall of the Innovation the Big Center. Triangle, absolutely. Yes, exactly. And now what we do at Medically Home is design interventions, design ways for patients to be able to have that care. And we've partnered with some incredible health systems and we're still working with Atrius today. It's just been a really fun and wonderful journey. I love that. Thanks for sharing it. Let's get real nuts and bolts here for just a little bit. Explain to the listeners what hospital at home is. Thanks for asking. Because a lot of people 
confuse what this is. And the, and the concept is so simple. 20 to 30% of what is in a bricks and mortar hospital today can be safely cared for at home. What am I talking about here? If you are going into a hospital because you are acutely ill and you have, and what you need is treatment and monitoring and care like that, we can do that at home. I believe that there's a future where hospitals are going to be, you know, centers of, of surgical care and ICU care and trauma, but that most other things we can move into the home. And, and that's the fundamental idea. Now, there's also to run a hospital, you need ways to intervene on patients quickly. And so we're also doing emergency department care in the home um, and other types of care models to shore that up uh, for patients in the home. Well, it's such, a, it's such an important thing, right? I mean, again, we're going to get into some of these details in terms of how it affects the patient, how it affects the, the caregiver as well inside of this system, and then the sheer expense of, of being inside a brick-and-mortar hospital versus staying at home. Now, it feels a little bit like that back-to-the-future kind of thing, right, in terms of the infamous home visit from your doctor, and I, I'm going to assume that's not exactly what it is. So tell us a little bit about like when you actually have a hospital home, how do you set, how do you set it up a hospital in a home? It, yes, it's not Marcus Welby anymore. Yes, Marcus um, Welby—that was the name I was looking for. <laughs> no, I know it's—it's it's, a lot of people ask that, but it's—it's it's that same caring idea, right? By moving care into a patient's home, you place that patient at the center of the care, truly at the center, where they are able to maintain autonomy and where I am a guest in their home, and I—I I see all these things that I now know about them. The nuts and bolts are 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 pretty elegant there's kind of three pillars that we think about. The first is you need a clinical team that understands how to deliver care at a distance tethered to clinical folks in the home. So our physicians, our nurses are in a command center. They're able to remotely contact patients by video, by voice, by all different means of communication. And they partner with caregivers in the home, including nurses, paramedics, therapists, et cetera, to provide the care that's needed at the bedside. So you have this really well-trained uh, group of folks. We help do that training. We help systems set up command centers and really create that environment. In the home, we need to make sure that whatever a patient needs, whatever that physician has ordered or, or that the patient requires is delivered in a timeframe that would be equivalent to a hospital. We, we've sort of batched it into about 18 different service categories. And it ranges from things like meals, right? When you're in a hospital, we feed you three times a day. Now at home, you're free to decline that and eat your own food, but we will offer every patient in a hospital home program, medically tailored meals. That's a small example, all the way up to uh, EKGs, intravenous medicines, uh, laboratory testing and imaging, which we can also do in the home. And all that has to be delivered in the appropriate timeframe. That's a, a, a really complex uh, logistics map, right? It's wonderful. And it's interesting. We need to make sure that folks who are going into the home are well-trained, they're credentialed, they're who they say they're going to be, you know, all those pieces. And so what ties this all together is technology and not technology for technology's sake, but technology that A, sits in the background and helps dispatch and deploy services to the home in, a, in an efficient manner but also that makes it easy for the patient to receive care. So redundant pathways of communication on patient request. We know that when a patient reaches out to their care team, 
they are talking to a human in 18 to 20 seconds, right? Measuring that it's, it, do they want a video? Do they want to do it by phone? How do they want to do it? We want to make sure it operates in a disaster, right? So uninterruptible power supply. We want to make sure that patients aren't required to bring things. We bring all the biometric equipment, all the devices and the connectivity, right? And that's tying together. That's the, the layer that's tying it together all to care for that patient in the home. Hey listeners, I want to take a quick moment to share something special with you. Many of the topics and discussions we have on this podcast are areas where I provide coaching and consulting services for individuals and organizations. If you've been inspired by our conversation and are seeking a catalyst for change in your own life or within your team, I invite you to visit coachjohngallagher.com forward slash free call to sign up for a free coaching call with me. It's an opportunity for us to connect, discuss your unique challenges, and explore how coaching or consulting can benefit you and your team. I'm here to equip you and encourage you every step of the way. Okay, let's get back to the show. Fantastic. I look at this and I look at the experience that my parents are going through right now. My mom is a caregiver. My dad is, you know, his health is failing. It seems like anytime I go home, he tries to stay up and do too much. And frankly, I end up taking him back to the emergency room. I'm there because he does too much. He gets all, he gets all worked up and he ends up in the hospital for a week and things like that mm -hmm. happen. And, you know, the, the system to your point, Hey, you don't want to go to the emergency room on a Friday night. We know all those stories in terms of what's, what's happening, things like that. But the idea of this hospital at home, I think is phenomenal. Okay. So I want to ask And especially from that again, because I, I'm experiencing it as, and I listened to a podcast recently, it says one in five Americans are caregivers of some sort. They're mm -hmm. either caring for a spouse, they're caring for an elderly parent, or they're caring for a child with a uh, disability. And that is overburdensome for a system. And I can see, uh, because of my knowledge of flow and things like that and waste, that I can see how hospital at home can be very powerful. But you mentioned you want that care. I've read this about what you've what you've talked about in the journey that you would want for your family. So, you know, what what should patients and caregivers, families understand about hospital at home it, from a clinical perspective? Is it better care or is it just you know com comfort care, if you will? Wow, you teed that up really well, John. It is better care. the The clinical outcomes in most cases are better. I mean, there are studies out there showing hospital at home patients have lower mortality than patients in the bricks and mortar hospital. That's the ultimate outcome, right? But they have fewer episodes of delirium, falls, infection, their functional status is better. You've probably seen, thank you, by the way, for sharing the story of your dad. You've probably seen, you know, he sounds like a, a fun, independent guy, but that over the years, the impact of each one of those hospitalizations chips away at somebody. And if we can keep that person home and getting the care they need, and this is full intensity acute care. This is not comfort care. This is not, it's, it's your time. We do this for patients. You know, we care predominantly for adults. So we've cared for patients 18 to 104, right? But older folks do have a disproportionate benefit because staying in your own environment, staying more active, being around the things and people that are most familiar to are so important. Now, that's the clinical picture. We hear over and over and over again from patients about how well cared for they felt, how they knew that whenever they had a question 
or a concern or a symptom, there was someone there to address it. That and, and they compared that to the experience in the bricks and mortar hospital where people were always gone. And, you know, doctors and nurses don't come to work in a hospital and want to be gone or do a bad job. It's the way it's structurally set up. You know that, right? Mm -hmm. If your job is a nurse is to hunt and gather all day, you're not spending time with patients. And we're making use of a full healthcare team so that we can have humans spending time with other humans. The final thing I'll say that's really important to us is the burden on caregivers, whether it's a child or a spouse, is very high when loved ones are sick. And we believe in hospital at home that we can keep the burden low. We don't want caregivers at home to be giving the medical care, right? We, we will bring folks in to do that. We want them to be the family and friends and support. And that's really important that this should be a respite for them as well. And so we know there's things like reduced travel time, right? We, because we're, we're doing a hybrid high-tech, high-touch, right? We can bring family caregivers to the bedside, even if they live far away. We're developing ways that they can have access to know what's happening for their loved one in a day versus in the hospital where you miss the doctor because they came by at six. You're not sure if they're coming by again. You're calling and calling for the nurse and can't reach them. You know, we really want to make this a good experience. <laughs> I've done it too. We've all done it, right? I designed this for my family. Um, and so we want to make this a completely different experience where you feel like you have the information and are part of that journey and, and, and can relax because your loved one is cared for and we know what's going on. Pippa, I know your passion. I know it really well. I know how much you <laughs> care about the people that you are trying to help on a regular basis, both those patients and those caregivers. And frankly, the, the staff that are providing that care, I would not, this is not a sales pitch, but I'd love to be in the room as you design some of the flows oh, yes. to make that work. Having said that, you've probably got a success story or two without any HIPAA violations that have really touched you with regards to that. Can you share, can you share one with the listeners as to where it's really worked? Oh, I would love to. You know, John, I mentioned that before that I have a background. I, I uh, my practice was mostly geriatrics, and so, you know, seeing the success in older patients was not a surprise to me. What was an incredible surprise to me is how how powerful this model is for vulnerable communities. And I think about patients who are often. Um, what we call duly eligible, so eligible for Medicare and Medicaid, and usually that's because they're low income and they may have an issue that causes them to be on permanent disability, and it's often a mental health issue uh, or something else. People who live in circumstances that are challenging. So, you know, we cared for, well, we we didn't care for, them, but a health system partner of ours cared for, and we supported the care of an individual who lived in a camper in his friend's yard. You know, and and that was that's that's an okay living situation. That's where he lives. We want to make sure that he can get care there. This gentleman had walked out of multiple emergency departments because he felt disrespected by staff and didn't want to be locked up in the hospital. And when they were able to make a hospital at home work for this individual, and 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 this individual was challenging. This individual pushed everyone's buttons and really tried to push the team away. But something really powerful happened. Number one, he got the medical care that he needed, which had been delayed and put off for so long. But more importantly, there was a trust built between him and the medical team 
that opened the door for this to potentially happen again. And here's a guy who has very little in terms of resources. And on the day of his discharge, he said to his discharging team, listen, if you ever need anything, you come to me and I will help you. And that's just, you know, the the power of that story is in that we gave this person the ability to maintain their dignity, to be able to have the reactions they needed to have, and to not create this dynamic of the difficult patient or the non-compliant patient, but to really work in what his circumstances were to get him to a better functional state of health. And I have seen that play out over and over and over again. And that's where I get really excited about expanded access. This was also in a, a more rural community. And so I think about how we could do this in more rural communities, how we can do this for populations that are traditionally poorly served by our system. And that includes communities of color. It includes you know, poor communities. And so I, I get so amped up by this because, yes, this works amazingly well for folks with lots of resources, but it works even better for folks with very little. Absolutely. I mean, especially those that are even home by themselves as well. Oh, don't have yes. a caregiver. I can imagine yep. that it's really like that. Can I tell I you one uh, more story? Though, yeah, I'll just say, I guess you could sell me 10. Go ahead. Absolutely. Yeah, because I, I love this. And it made me think of your, your mom and dad. We had a wonderful, we had a, there was a couple and the the husband was the caregiver for the wife. And I might've gotten that backwards. Uh, she had some dementia and he became short of breath and, and started coughing and didn't want to leave her. And so the health system we were partnered with, we were able to deploy an ED and home service for this gentleman. And in fact, he had pneumonia and was able to be cared for in his home, didn't need a hospitalization, but we could get him the care he needed. There was follow-up the next day. He could stay with his wife, right? And this was right before the holiday time. You know, and he said to the team, like, if I'd had to go into the hospital before Christmas, if I couldn't have been there with my wife, she would have had to go into an institution. And I don't know that I ever would have gotten her out. You know, that's the kind of thing where we're able to support both members of the family in that, and it can be challenging, but where it's so incredibly powerful that I I just, the team tells me stories every week. And I, I should, we, we start every leadership meeting with a patient story. We start every all hands of the patient story. We, we try to bring them to every meeting so that we remember the why mm. of why we're doing this. So. Pippa, I don't know. You, you were probably somehow in my parents' house, although I know there's not a hospital. <laughs> system in West Virginia that does it because my mom did Not get yet. pneumonia while she was caring oh. for my dad and she and she couldn't go to the hospital to get checked out. She had, she had to get to the doctor. You know, he has early I, I would make up it's not been diagnosed, but he has early onset sure. dementia. I know he does just by memory and things yeah. like that that are going on. So yeah, that the story touched some and I, I, I gotta believe you have plenty of those. And we what do. I've read is that, you know, this hospital at home over the time that you've been putting this through has served over, you know, twenty five thousand patients. Uh, I think so we're almost at 27. So. 27. Yeah, you add them up quick. We need yeah. it to be 10 times that. And you know, We do. And what are the barriers to scaling this, Pippa? I mean, I, that, as I got to believe in your part, is what you have to deal with more on a daily basis than the actual care model itself. Well, and, I, you know, this is the perfect uh, conversation to talk about this because the barriers to scale, yes, you know, logistics, but that's a problem that can be solved, right? Technology is a problem that, that we're ever iterating on and ever improving. The 
there's two big barriers we have. The first one I'm going to cover quickly because I hate talking about it. And that is the reimbursement system in this country, right? (laughs) Fee for service model kills us every time, right? And then kills every time. Now that being said, uh, commercial payers are actually really bullish on hospital at home. They have seen how it can benefit them because of reduced readmission rates, uh, reduced complications of hospitalization, mm-hmm. but it's patchwork, right? And everyone thinks, oh, you know, national payer X is excited about hospital at home. It must mean I can get it. And as you well know, nope, actually it's a state by state, this, that, and the other thing. Mm-hmm. CMS, you know, Medicare does pay for hospital at home under this waiver that's valid through 2024. So we're in this whole regulatory piece and that creates uncertainty. Nobody likes uncertainty. I believe we will get a permanent payment. I believe we will tackle these insurance, these payers one by one. But the biggest barrier um, is the, the culture of medicine right now. And that's both from the medical practitioner side, but also quite frankly, from the patient or consumer side, right? Who believe Uh, When I'm sick, I will go get fixed in a hospital. And fortunately, patients are much easier to convince that they shouldn't be in a hospital than physicians. So that's a a, a somewhat easier one. I'm not trying to be flip. But we really have a a culture where we bring folks into the hospital. We do things because we can and they're available to us. And so you see tremendous amounts of waste in the system where we're ordering tests that have already been ordered, where we're ordering daily and, and multi-time a day labs that we don't need because they're not clinically actionable, but it it makes us feel comfortable if we're doing something to patients. And we've got to break, that's what we have to break. Now, what what endlessly, I mean, I laugh all the time because even though the culture is the problem, every time I talk about hospital at home in a group of, of clinicians, docs will come up to me and be like, I did this for my mom. I did this for my dad. I did this for my uncle. I did this for doctors know they themselves and they don't want their family members to be in the hospital. We are showing them that now this can be true for everybody, but it's a, it's a big hurdle. It is the activation energy of, of culture change. That is always the, it's no different than any, any other change in any other organization. That's what we're fighting. I think that's the biggest barrier right now. Uh, Pip, I appreciate you sharing that again, but what I appreciate as well is not laying it all on the payment model. Right. There's like things that, you know, what part of, we had a guy we used to work with named Gene Lindsay, who was CEO at Atriusl. He'd say, what part of the problem am I? Okay. And we are, as the system, we are, as the consumer, part of the problem as we go forward through that. So I'm going to just steer just a little bit, shift just a little bit and talk to the Mm -hmm. leaders that are on the, on the listening call again. Pippa, you've become a leader. You've always been a leader. You've been of someone that's been out front. You've been someone who's been inspiring. You've been someone who's been encouraging, uh, developing on your own. And this has not been an easy track for you. If you're at 20, almost 27,000 patients, 10% growth of what was in the papers that I read about, that there is progress, albeit slow progress. How have you remained resolute as a leader on this journey facing those problems, knowing how difficult they are to overcome? What do you do, what do, you do to overcome those? I mean, the the first thing I do, I mean, the the number one thing that keeps me excited and energized and going is something I mentioned earlier, and that's the impact on people. That is the impact on our patients. And we keep the patient at the center of what we do every single day. And I can't stress that enough. It's a, it's your mission. And it does, you know, if you're not in healthcare, are you aligned with the mission of your organization? 
Because if you have mission alignment, you can do anything. I, I, I just can't stress that enough. And for us, our mission is exceptional care for patients every single day. So that's thing one. Thing two is that I see the excitement and the enthusiasm from the clinical teams when they get exposed to this. Yes, it can be slow, but we are seeing those numbers accelerate, right? The first year we did this in 2017, I mean, I, I could have, we, Raphael, my, one of our founders and my partner used to put a marble into a bowl every time we saw a patient. And those marbles didn't add up very quick. He had a hundred marbles and we were all so excited to get to a hundred patients that it, it took, it feels like it took forever. Right. Mm-hmm. And now, you know, we've accelerated fast enough that we're, you know, over a thousand patients a month. We're really, we're seeing more acceleration, but you're right. I want to see it go faster. But as I see the, the enthusiasm from the clinical teams on the impact this has on their workforce and their patients, that's when I know we are onto something. We will get there and, you know, you help me, you know, your team in the, in the, in past years, helped me understand the, you know, the adoption curve, that curve of innovation and that we still need to cross the chasm, right? We are not there mm-hmm. yet, <laughs> but we're learning how we're, we are getting, that's, that's where we're getting right now. And when we cross that chasm, the acceleration is going to be huge. Love it. Speaking of that, let's bring it, steer back into hospital at home again sure. and the future. So, you know, what's your vision? I do believe it's going to take off. I do believe that curve is going to change and you're going to see an exponential increase in the number of patients as well. I have hope because of the leaders like you that the system can make a change there. But what's the landscape look like then for you a few years in the future for hospital at home? You know, I it, it is not unusual now where I hear from a different customer site that oh, wow, we just admitted a patient who came in and requested the program. The future for me is that the public has an expectation of receiving this kind of care in their home and that it's not a choice anymore for health systems to have to uh, offer this as an option and to have to build this up and that payment will be universal. That's the future I see very, very clearly. And that we have slayed some of the regulatory issues state by state that we see. And so we're getting Medicaid coverage for hospital at home and that we're really able to provide this full spectrum of acute care in the home. But I, 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 see, I see that clear as day. That's what we're going towards. Excellent. How do you spend your days today? What, what, is, what is the day like in the life of Pippa Schulman right now? You know, when when Medically Home first started and I was first joining them, we were a very small team. I did everything, right? I, as you you pointed out, I cared for our first X number of patients. I designed the model. We tried everything out. I, if, if someone couldn't make a visit, I would go to the home. If I, you know, And as you grow and as we scale, I've had to um, build a team. And so part of what I do each day is spending time with my team. They're incredible. They're incredible leaders themselves, and I get to help support and coach them to success and be able to orchestrate the growth of our programs and our company and and new work that we're doing. Uh, So some of that's internal. Today, I was on a call where we bring all of our implementation resources together, and we talk about kind of what's new and what's happening. And, you know, two of my team members presented on the call, and it was incredible to see the work they're doing on how we can innovate, bringing patients into the model, how the care of patients is um, innovating in the model. 
I also spend parts of each day uh, talking to our customers. I have um, executive relationships with many of our customers, particularly on the clinical side. And so, you know, I get to spend a lot of time with clinical leaders at some incredible organizations and really how this fits into their goals and where they're seeing great success and where they may be struggling with adoption or, you know, budget issues, which are so prevalent right now in the healthcare system. So there's a part of each day that's that. Mm -hmm. And then I try to block off time each day. And this is not going to be a surprise to you for thinking and, uh, you know, synthesis of information and understanding the data that's around us and really thinking about what's next. Some days I don't get any of that time. It's all meetings back to back. But some days I really get to carve out that time and, and collaborating with the team to think about to think about where we're going and how we're going to be successful. Very cool. Pippa, I'm excited for you. I'm excited for what you're doing. Thank um, you, John. Uh, honoring your time as we as I look at, at the clock as we go forward with this, are there any questions, and I don't ask this very often, are there any questions that you wanted me to ask that I didn't ask? I felt like you were going to ask me when we were talking about, you know, your your family, but but the families and caregivers. What I wanted you to ask is how can more people get access to hospital at home? And my answer is tough, right? But we need people in every industry to start asking for this. You know, it, ask your doctor, talk to your payer. Is this a benefit for you? If you're an employer, make this a benefit for your employees. You know, and finally, talk. You know, we encourage people to call members of Congress, either in their state legislatures or in, or in Congress, and talk about why home hospital is important and why we need to grow this across the country. Thank you, Pippa. Thank you for asking Thank that you, question, John. for asking that question for me. One of the things <laughs> in my notes that I did notice that my current home state of South Carolina is number four on the top five states that have the most hospitals that have been approved, which is cool. Um, but I also noticed the map in the literature you sent me that the state of West Virginia has zero, so uh, That's right. which is in and of itself uh, disappointing. Having said that, it's going to take an effort by the consumer, you're exactly right, to demand that this service be offered to, through the payers, through their um, political leaders, You know that they're electing to make sure that they have them in mind as they go through this, and it's not an easy one. And with their providers of care to say, I want you to do this. I want you to figure out a way to do this. So I do appreciate that. Yeah. And you, John, you, you know my passion. You know, part of this is not about a company. I'm, I'm excited about the success we've had, but this is about a movement of better healthcare, of care really, truly centered around patients in a way that I never imagined when I was doing my training or first starting out in practice. Well, I know I've, I've talked to you up pretty good on this podcast, and, I, and I'll keep doing that as I go forward. I mean, Pippa is a Dr. Shulman is a superstar. I even look back into LinkedIn when she studied. She didn't study just one uh, form of medicine. You study, you have a what did it what did he call it? Like three? You got I am triple boarded. Yes, yeah, triple yes. boarded. Yeah, who's triple boarded? <laughs> Maybe so, lots of people are, but yes, it just lots. means I've that's spent like twenty five thousand patients served. Is yeah, it's too much money on school. I get that too, no, which no, is no. another thing, by the way, that needs to be reformed to oh, make this yes. work. And we can yes. get into that conversation at some point in the future. But yeah, that. absolutely. And again, it goes back to all I knew, like. This doctor has got some passion for this. She's not. She's not normal. So I appreciate. <laughs> I appreciate the not normal in that I conversation. Agree. That's a good not normal. A high okay, compliment, John. So, so, 
just a couple more questions. I promise I'll let you go. So no, no, of course. When's your book coming out? You know, it, I, it's funny. I know I have a book in me. Writing is really hard. So if there's someone out there who wants to write with me, let's do it. Because I've got a lot of stories to tell. You heard that, folks. I got another couple of ways. I, so offline, let, ask me about a couple of those. By Perfect. the way, I haven't written mine yet either. So I'm waiting. What's the title of the book going to be? Oh, wow. That's a good one. I, I don't That's a great question. I think that's, I need a minute to think about that, John. Oh, my goodness. That's okay. I'm going to ask you the tougher. Maybe it's the same one as your next question but when you do decide to write in and like i said i got a couple of different folks who not ghostwriting you don't need a ghostwriter uh, but folks who can take podcasts like this and transcribe your interviews and say there's your book right there it's just a matter of putting it in the concepts and bringing those forward mm-hmm. but uh, bringing it back home and, and, and into pip but i mean in the influence that you want to have in both healthcare but more importantly as you said in the lives of others especially when you connect it to your family and how important it is to you to do that i'm going to give you a billboard you can put it anywhere you want to and i'm going to let you write anything you want to on that billboard what's going to be on the billboard and why would you put that on the billboard my billboard would say lift up the voices of those who can't speak loud enough for themselves i would probably write it a little differently i was taught by my my parents that we look out for the little guy and that we speak up for people when they can't speak up. As a physician, that's a lot of what I do when people are suffering. They often cannot advocate for themselves. The The facility-based medical system marginalizes people. That's part of what I do. So that's my billboard. And I think we, the news does not cover the the amount of caring that is out there and we need to get back in touch with that. So that's something that I feel really, really strongly about. Pippa, this has been a pleasure having you on. I've had fun getting caught back up Me with you. Me too. How how can folks stay in touch with you? They're gonna wanna they're gonna wanna find you and talk to you. Well, Pippa Shulman on LinkedIn. I have to say the the platform formerly known as Twitter, not as fun to be on anymore. So I'm not there very much. But you can also find me on the Medically Home website and reach out, email me, and we can have a conversation. It'll be great. I'll put links to both those things in the show notes so that folks can stay in touch. Once again, Dr. Pippa Shulman, thank you so much for your time and investing it with the listeners of the Uncommon Leader Podcast. John, thank you. It's been a pleasure. And that wraps up another episode of the Uncommon Leader Podcast. Thanks for tuning in today. If you found value in this episode, I encourage you to share it with your friends, colleagues, or anyone else who could benefit from the insights and inspiration we've shared. Also, if you have a moment, I'd greatly appreciate if you could leave a rating and review on your favorite podcast platform. Your feedback not only helps us to improve, but it also helps others discover the podcast and join our growing community of uncommon leaders. Until next time, go and grow champions.